Good morning, Sarah Heffala. Good morning, Nancy Rommelman. You're in a cool, old, ratty t-shirt like we just woke up next to each other. Super hot. Um, and you, I think it's actually the middle of the night where you are, if I'm not mistaken. It is, but I've been up for like three hours. I've already watched the third episode of Milf Manor. <laughs> so you wake up at two in the morning to watch Milf Manor. Got it. Cool. Good. Absolutely. That shit dropped last night and I was like, I'm too tired. I can't devote my attention to this. I need to wake up tomorrow morning and then I'll be able to. I'm in Los Angeles and um, so it is 5 a.m., but I have been up since 1.30 a.m. I have to think I have to reveal because I have to use the picture you sent. So uh, Sarah's in LA and I have a friend who lives in LA. I have many friends who live in LA. Uh, but one of my friends is Michael Scott Moore, who is a very, very good journalist and also happens to be the um, the American journalist that was held captive by Somali pirates for 978 days. I might be getting 77, that. yeah. 77. And he's got a great book out about it. And he's a friend and Sarah was there and he kind of texted her and they got together. And then Sarah sent me an awesome picture. What, what were you making him do last night, Sarah? Well, okay. All of a sudden, this is like taken on like much more heated. Like we got <laughs> together for lunch is the rest yep. of that sentence. It was the afternoon. <laughs> we met in Culver City, which was between us, uh, the very the very romantic mm. uh, sandwich shop in Culver City. But one of the things I noticed at, at the Culver City place was that they sold deep fried Oreos. Mm -hmm. Now, deep fried Oreos, if you don't know them, I mean, I'm from Texas, so this is our native food. Right. This they have that like in the like, hospital when the babies are born. That's like the That's the exactly second right. Thing. It's one yeah. of the first yeah. things they do. They yep. put deep fried Oreos into your <laughs> bottles so that you're you're sort of like You just dip it in the milk, basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Deep fried Oreos, to my knowledge, and like if I'm wrong about this, just light me up in the comments. But my understanding is that deep fried Oreos are an invention of the Texas State Fair which happens in Dallas every year and has this like ongoing arms race to have the most ridiculous foods that are deep fried. Mm -hmm. So deep fried Oreos are a thing. But they had them on the menu at this place in Culver City. And I was like, all right, I'm getting those. And so we get them and they're basically like, they did them. I'm not going to, I don't, I hate to be rude to the people of Los Angeles, but they were doing it wrong. Sure. It's okay. Because they were still delicious. Yeah. But they were basically like a donut hole with a deep fried Oreo inside and then oh. like a ch chocolate on the top. And so I had four of them and, and Michael who was, let's just, let's just, he was held captive by Somali pirates for 977 <laughs> days was like, I cannot do that. Like I, I cannot, I cannot. Hey, this is a man has limits. Okay. A man has limits. Okay. <laughs> and I'm like, no, you got it. You got to have one. They're amazing. <laughs> wouldn't eat them. And finally, I convinced him to take one home, which I think is like the nice way of like saying, I'm not going to eat this and ditch it in the trash. But the lady was nice and I don't want her thinking I didn't want her deep fried Oreo. Well, I love the picture you said because the look on his face is like, really? But I'd like to say yeah. in that arms race to deep fry everything, which, of which I wholly approve, the, oh, I God. think you're not going to beat what I heard once was deep fried butter. <laughs> oh yeah. What? Yeah. They, 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 and, and they do these things like deep fried rosé and deep fried, <laughs> they do deep fried milk. Oh, milk. You're, actually, that's going to be my, my nickname for you. Deep fried deep milk. Deep fried milk. Oh, hey, Sarah. So you've been watching, uh, I think we're going to talk about, uh, a little bit about, uh, MILF matter in the, in the bonus, but I'm glad you've gotten your hit today. It's like a daily vitamin, basically. You're, you're feeling good. You're feeling strong. You're feeling ready. Uh, I have to and check I, in on my MILFs. I got to see how my MILFs are doing. And you know, it's like if, if a week goes by and I don't know how those MILFs are, it's like so everything feels off. You know, I have to say, I'm just, I haven't seen the show and I'm just as delighted to just hear you talk about it. That's just plenty you don't, of nutrition You don't for need me. to, honestly, nope. nobody needs to watch nope. the show. I'm going to tell you the parts that you need to know about and they're always fascinating. Um, it is really a journey, but you just don't need to take it. Let me, let me just do this. It's sort of like reading for the blind or something like that. Uh, like you, uh, you don't need to read the book. I'm going to do it for you. I have a I have a reading to the blind story. So when I was uh, 
I guess around 30. My daughter was three and I, I, I was just, it was just she and I now. And I felt so grateful for life. And I just thought I want to give back. So I went and started to read to the blind at the Braille Institute in Los Angeles, where you are right That's now. That's super cool. I've always wanted to do this. Near my house. And not, but not only was I able to read to the blind, which was cool, but there were some writers there, including a playwright that got kind of famous and I would help them with their writing. And, um, you know, because it was hard for them to edit, right? And uh, it was August when I was doing, I guess I started doing it in the summer and it was August and I wore like a little halter one day because it was super hot. And I get a call at night from the head of the Braille Institute saying that I had dressed inappropriately. And I was like- Congratulations. Uh, but I was like, but- they it's the blind. Can't see me. She said, what, like, what were you wearing? I had on a halter and some jeans. Oh, hot. And Even, they just, but, uh, you know what? You know what? Even the blind can feel that. Now, you know what it was? I think there was a dude that worked there that he kind of like liked me or something. And I think she did. I don't know what happened, but I did think it was pretty like I, I got kind of semi canned for wearing a halter top around the blind. I'm so proud of you I, right now. I, <laughs> I'm so proud of you for being dressed inappropriately for reading for the blind. That's just like the biggest baller move. <laughs> so, um, Go ahead. By I'm, the way, hey, Nancy, I was at a party last night and I met somebody that knows you and they were saying really nice things about you. Do you want to hear? I want to hear all the nice things. Yeah. I'm not <laughs> going to tell you the two bad things that he said. No, I'm just kidding. He didn't say bad things. Um, Mickey Cows. Oh, Mickey. Hey, Mickey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mickey has been a friend for many, many, many years. I met him back in the buzz days. He was good friends with Kathy Sipe. And um, when he comes to New York sometimes and he needs... um like a date for like some smashing party. Like we've gone to some fancy parties. Um, I'm like, he's his, connected. That dude I'm is his, connected. Yeah. I'm his arm candy. And I, I'd like to tell you just, just so you know, two other people that have, well, not his arm candy, but other ladies that he's taken to these events include Peggy Noonan, who I met with him once at an event and, uh, uh, Ann Coulter. So there you go. It's yeah, me, he's got a weird Peggy thing. Noonan and Ann Coulter. So That's, you are a right-wing activist is what I've learned well, from Yeah, this. well, hey, I like Peggy so, Noonan. I like the way she writes. Anyway. Oh, really? So, anyway. So, um, so Mickey Kaus, if you don't know, is like um, he did the Kaus Files for Slate for a million years. And um, he's like a super connected political writer. And then like at some point <clears throat> he kind of made a shift and started doing stuff on Fox News, but then he got canceled by Fox News. So he's just canceled by everybody. But he was telling stories about how he loved to go to parties with you because you're such a connector and you know everybody. And um, and he was like, he was like, it's great to be with Nancy. He was like, it was confusing at first because she always touches me. And I was like, what? Oh, I do. Like you're like, you, oh. you're flirt. You're like naturally flirtatious. Yeah, 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 yeah. Not touching it. And in a very not, PG way. No, like touching your, touching all, yeah, but yeah. these are all, it's, it's all sec sexual signaling. Oh, well, what can I do? What can I say? Yeah. And, and he was like, and then I realized she does it to everyone. And I was like, yeah, Aww. she does it to me. Sorry. And he Mickey. was like, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Mickey. <laughs> he was like, but she's always taken. So it's okay. It's, it's okay for her to, to flirt with people because she's, she's, she's never like I, available. I think I'm blushing a little, but here's the thing. I don't actually, Okay, you tell me if I'm wrong, and I'm sorry. We're talking about me. We should be talking about me. But I don't really think I'm flirting with people. I'm just talking to them. Well, I mean, this is the problem. You know, flirtation in, implies intent, but it's also a perception. So uh, you may not be intending flirtation, but it might be perceived as flirtation. Well, and this is something that I run into as well because I'm super friendly. I call people baby. Um like yeah. I, oh my God, uh, I shouldn't tell this. No, I'm not going to, uh, I'm going to tell this story maybe in the, bonus? the primo episode, but okay. it cannot right. be, it has to be for subscribers. Paid and, subscribers. Um, <laughs> paid subscribers. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Freeloaders. We love you, but not that much. But not as much. Okay. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I like basically the point of this is I have a habit of winking at people when I... I'm like, you know, thanks or whatever. I'll wink at them. And it's, that is, that is like a, so like dorky. a total, like, it's, oh no, it's, it's, I think it's so dorky. It's, but it's so like dorky. a textbook. Come on. 
You know, I realized, I guess about 15 years ago, I realized I was kind of like winking a little bit. And I was like, Nancy, stop it. Stop I, need, I really do need to stop the winking. It's awful. It's I do need to stop awful. the winking. But you know what it is? It's because I'm joking all the time. And I want to make sure people know that I'm joking. It's like using an emoji. You know, emojis yeah. are so dorky, but you need them sometimes to be like, this was a joke. Um, I have a question for you that is kind of related to MILF Manor. Thank God. Are there I'm any... The, I'm the expert. Bring it here. Are there any words that they use in MILF Manor that you think the AP might object to? <laughs> <laughs> All of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there's been a lot of... um. I mean, obviously, there's been language policing for a while, but boy, we've sure gotten it in the past couple months, a couple months ago in December with the Stanford um, list that they put out, which was called, I think, the Elimination of Harmful uh, Language Initiative, which I don't think was supposed to be a public document, but it wound up in the Wall Street Journal and just people went bananas over the some of the things you're not supposed to say anymore, including he or she. That's out. Shouldn't be using that at all, which is... is Wait, they said that in... Yep. That was in the Stanford one. And they also had things like... uh, One I wrote down was Greybeard. Okay, so Sarah, it's really... What am I going to call you? What am I going to call you? I mean, if we were in Game of Thrones, then maybe we would be using... It's like... What what are you talking about? Yeah, the ferreting for looking for offensive language was insane. Actually, the fifth column boys did a good did a good uh, did a good bit about this. Um, But anyway, more recently, and something that you were sort of on was uh, an AP language guide. You're not supposed to use the. Is that right? Well, it's not that you can't use the. I mean, that would be insane. (laughs) No, I mean. as a modifier. Let me let, yeah. me uh let me read the tweet that went out by the AP guidebook. And in case you don't know what this is, I mean this is this is really sort of like the style guide for journalism, but it's used other places. You know, it's used by corporations. Um they sort of set the tone for what is appropriate in language. So this is the tweet. We recommend avoiding general and often dehumanizing the labels, such as the poor, the mentally ill, the French, the disabled, the college educated. Instead, use wording such as people with mental illnesses and use these descriptions only when clearly relevant. You know, I saw that tweet um, or someone had pinned it. It had already been deleted, but I was like, the French? I mean, the French. We, 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 the French have done some bad things, as have all you know cultures and countries. But I, I was laughing. So Don't hard you just love saying it though, like the French, the French, and then uh, the French. I, I sent you something last night where the uh, the French, uh, what was it? The French consulate just started laughing about it and, and making fun of themselves. Um, so the French embassy in Washington said that it needed to refer to itself as quote the embassy of Frenchness in the U.S. <laughs> and this. This led to the AP tweeting that its earlier tweet had unintentionally given offense to <laughs> the French. So, so they had said, we deleted an earlier tweet because of an inappropriate reference to French people. We did not intend to, intend to offend. Writing French people, French citizens, etc. is good. But the terms for any people can sound dehumanizing and imply a monolith rather than a diverse individualism. So where do we start? Where do we start? So the Americans, we, how how much offense would you take over that? It's like a three on a ten. I would have a zero on a ten for the Americans. How about? Yeah, but the, think about this though, Nancy. It's you're talking about America. There's 42 countries in the Americas, right? You're, and but, you're trying to you're trying to just talk about one. That no, is offensive to me I'm sorry, because I I'm a Guion, I'm part Guyanan, Guyan, Guyanese. Um, uh, the writers, the women. How where, am I? Am I crossing into dangerous territory? I'm wondering. The women. The women is the that women is like a five, a four on a ten for me. Wow, Sarah, you just have thin skin, girl. I don't know what to tell you. I have very, but it's very soft. Yes. <laughs> I mean, how, what can I say? It's like a lamb, a lamb skin condom. Um, <laughs> <laughs> 
Everyone tells me. Sorry. Um, okay, so let's let's talk a little bit more about this. Talk about um, why why do you think this is being put put out now? Why is this important to uh, to to why why are these style guides important? What's driving this, Sarah? There's a really great piece by David Reef. David Reef is the son of Susan Sontag, and uh, he does a Substack called Desire and Fate. And I would recommend subscribing to it. I don't even think I pay for it. It's, and he does these like, it's just like these random things that show up in your inbox. And some of them are like one line and some of them are like 2000 words. And, um, it's really interesting because he's such a deep thinker. And, you know, he makes the point that, of course, we have to quote unquote police language. I mean, language has, is a carrier for meaning and a reflection of our values. You know, he points out that nobody would be up in arms if they had, for instance, said you shouldn't say somebody was Jude. That was you on know, the, they, uh, that was on the Stanford, the Stanford. Yeah. Well, that's not list. a good phrase. No, it's not. But then you also have to say like who, this is at Stanford. They're policing themselves. Who is Stanford is saying this? Like, well, is this I, something we don't that's know. Be- it's not, that's yeah. not important. Who is saying it? it? It's it's that you know we want to codify how we speak, and that these are the terms that we would suggest you avoid. I mean, honestly, I was about thirty five before I realized that "gypped" was not a good term. I, I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know it referred to gypsy. You know, here's my, my and this is always my problem. It's like, okay, you know, I, I, first of all, when we were talking about this earlier, language is a living thing. I am all for people making up words. I make up words all the time, making, you know, definitions sometimes more flexible. I'm not as flexible on uh, on punctuation. I'm a bit of a punctuation um, uh, purist. However, who's doing the codifying? Why are they, why are we hearing this now? Who's doing it and who are they policing and who are they maybe seeking sub rosa or, or actively to get in trouble? Like, who, why are we doing these things now? I'm, I'm, I'm suspect. I'm suspect. Well, okay. So Reef, who is a deep thinker on this topic, you know, talks about a couple of different, a couple of different, um, codes that have been, that have been popping up. And he says, the purpose of these increasingly prevalent speech codes is, in the words of another such index, which is the harmful language statement of the University of San Francisco's Gleason Library, to engage in, quote, ongoing reparative projects to identify harmful description, to remediate the harmful language when it's possible, and when remediation is not possible, advocate for change. So, you know, this is part of this, what what Wes Yang would call the successor ideology. Yeah. You know, that that there has been a tsunami of social and cultural changes that uh, could be boiled down to the change from one, uh, a, a culture of equality to one of equity. Um, and, you know, Reef is really smart here. You know, he talks about the fact that, you know, this is something that is meant for inclusion, but it is actually a tool of exclusion. <clears throat> he says, the entire direction of the identitarian tsunami that has crashed down on our moral and societal shores of late has appeared to be about the upholding and validation of group identity and indeed the insistence that it be unquestionably affirmed. But beneath the skin of identity politics, the skull of individualism remains unchanged. For individualism has always been about insisting that one should not be treated as a member of a group, but as the sovereign of one's identity making of it entirely what one wishes, inventing, and if necessary, reinventing itself as one needed, one as needed. The boutique identities of our era, too often misdescribed as balkanization, are in fact individualism's false flag operation. Um, I, that's a, I cut out some stuff in the middle, so I'm, I'm not sure if that, if that made sense, but I'll link the story and, you know, his point is that is that this idea as as we cater to group identities it is in contact with individ it is in conflict with individualism individualism is about the ability to be whatever you want 
And this is a sort of oppression and it's oppressing along, along group identity lines. So that if you are gay, you have to be like this. If you are trans, you have to be like this. If you are straight, you have to be like this. This has always been anathema to me. I don't like dogma. You know, it's why the only, you know, group that I really am a member of, other than whatever group you're in, is AA. Because AA says that these rules are only suggestions. You know, you, you, you can, you can give us the flip off at any time because it's built for defiance. And the idea is to find your way through, not to just become another drone. And, um, so, so, you know, you asked, why is this happening? I mean, it's happening because it gains status amongst a certain group of people, because I think there are a lot of well-meaning individuals that have been slated into pole positions in these places, because the, because I'll tell you what, the year 2020, like history is really hard to read, but, but 2020 is history breaking oh. in a clear, bright line. Oh boy. I've got something I want to, I was kind of running by you that I want to write about that, but <clears throat> um, akin to this, and we'll, we'll keep going to AP. We both read a piece by Rob Henderson. It's a yeah. very good writer and a good thinker. And he was writing about luxury beliefs. And specifically when it comes to language, I put down two of the quotes he wrote. Um, he said, when someone uses the phrase cultural appropriation, they are really saying, I went to a top college. Only the affluent can afford to learn strange vocabulary because ordinary people have real problems to worry about. Um, a little aside, when I when I met Tim, my ex, very, very different background um, from me, as my, my brother once said, you know, Nancy, Tim didn't grow up with three kinds of soap in the bathroom, grew up very, very, um, very poor. And I did not. I grew up sort of, you know, upper middle class or solidly middle class and upper had middle class. I this know. Is new. I know. Well, solidly. My, my dad, who came from zero, came from zero. His father, you know, died when he was three. He was making paper flowers with his mother at three and a half to help support the family. You, you don't. Yeah, you don't need to defend it. I'm just going to well, borrow money from you my, now. It, uh, well, no, I what now? I'm shoot. I'm a freelance writer lady. But um, oh. I have to just say it's kind of a long wind up to say not only am I super grateful to have been with Tim, who I love and who I miss, and we had a beautiful daughter, but it was very, very good in my early 20s to not have this illusion that the sort of ideas I grew up with, like which were, you know, we went to nice colleges, I lived in a nice house and, and took certain things for granted, that that was what the world was like and that was like what was important. When After I got together with Tim, I was 23, he put a pin on his cap baseball cap that said, we don't care how they do it in New York. And mm -hmm. I realized how unbelievably provincial New Yorkers are. Oh, Unbelievable. I'm Unbelievable. glad you learned that. You know, yeah. I am so, oh, you have no idea how grateful I was and still am and always will be to have learned this. That this is yeah. not, you know, New York, they know everything. They know how to cross the street. They know what water should taste like. They, we have the best of everything. It's like, it's just... It's really obnoxious is what it is, okay? It's really you, obnoxious. So do you know that, um, is it like a New Yorker cartoon that's like New Yorker's yes. view of the world yes. and it's just New yes. York? It cuts off, at, it cut, basically cuts off at like uh, uh, on the uh, on the west side and then you've got the Hudson River and then it's like, you know, it's, it's other countries. That's it, yes. But um, I, 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 I actually could not do the job that I do and have done had I lingered under... Those beliefs, which of course we know a lot of sort of, you know, East Coast journalists do continue to linger over. Like they know what's best. Like they're going to tell you, they're going to tell you how you should vote and who you should hate and what kind of language you should use. And that is just, just not, that is not the way the world is. And you make the world much tinier if you think that way. I mean, the sort of example that's given often was a couple of years ago, they, they, I guess, uh, queried a bunch of um, Latin Hispanic people and said, what do you prefer? What do you prefer to be referred as to you? You know, is it, is it Mexican, Hispanic, Latin, Latinx? And something like 3% identified with Latinx. And, with, and yet we're told, including in the Stanford um, uh, uh, Elimination of Harmful Language Initiative, that you should only use Latinx. Well, who are you? Who, who said? Who said what? That's why I'm asking. What is the point of this? Who, what is behind this? What is well, the I, point? 
Well, I really liked Rob's Substack essay because, first of all, I didn't know Rob. I mean, I think I follow him on Twitter, but I didn't really know who he was. It seems like he's a professor. Uh, Or he was. I don't know. He's got a really interesting background, which he refers to quite a lot. And I'm not going to, you know, go read his stuff. He's easy to follow on Twitter. He's got a good Substack. He writes a lot. He's one of these people that writes like, it's like, how do you write so much that's researched yeah, like this? Him. Yeah. <laughs> him and Kat Rosen. I don't like him She just like just... Run, run into the sunset and leave the rest of us crying into our word yeah. processors. Um, Screw you. But, 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 uh, <laughs> he talks about, his background, which basically, you know, he's he did not grow up. Oh boy! Like la di da, Nancy no, no. Rommelman around That's here. That's right. And he grew up, you know, in a really difficult circumstances. And he went to Yale on the GI Bill, and he became a professor. And he quickly learned that there was a kind of new status on campus, and the status had to do with language instead of logos. And so one of the things that he I, that he sort of correctly identifies is that a lot of this language stuff, it's like the verbal equivalent of carrying a Louis Vuitton bag in 1985. But now Louis Vuitton bags are available, you know, in cheap form and anybody can have them. So it, it doesn't matter if you it's have one. It's not status like, anymore. It's not status yeah. anymore. No. And, you know, he has a lot of great quotes in there um, that are about basically uh, the way, like, that so much of this is a status competition. Um, he, he quotes a lot of interesting thinkers. People, you know, I'm not, I'm not so good on this stuff. But he quotes the French sociologist Emile Durkheim. And when he says, the more one has, the more one wants, since satisfactions received only stimulate instead of filling needs. So that's the end of the quote. It basically just means wanting leads to more wanting, which is certainly true. And Henderson says, you know, recent research supports this. It's the upper class who are most preoccupied with gaining wealth and status. Well, it's really not cool to be quote unquote wealthy anymore. It's like, you know, you you know, talking about your private jet will get you canceled. So don't talk about that. But if you use these signifiers of, you know, Latinx, is it Latinx or Latinx? Latinx rhymes with Kleenex. <laughs> okay. So, I don't, so I that's think it. I, I think it's Latinx. I've only heard it Latinx, but maybe it's... I just thought because it's Latino, that it would, so be. It would be Latinx. Like I want to keep, I want to keep the, the accent in the same place. Anyway, it's not important. Okay, okay. Um, You know, who uses those? It's the 1%. And, you know, he he makes a lot of really interesting points about how the upper class are kind of setting this trend that the rest of us have to burden underneath. That have to pay for. That the they rest of us for. have to pay for. I've got a, another quote for, he had from Thomas Sowell. And I would I would change if I, obviously, I'm not going to be editing Thomas Sowell. But there was one word, and I'll tell you which one I would have eliminated from this. So the quote is, um, Thomas Sowell once said that activism, in quotes, is a way for useless people to feel important, even if the consequences of their activism are counterproductive to those they claim to be helping and damaging to the fabric of society as a whole. I would take out the way the word useless because I don't think anybody is useless. I think That's we right. all can be useful, but I do. I mean, hi, how, how I've been writing about Portland now for years and I keep saying like, what are, what are we doing? What are we building here? You say you're helping people, but I don't, I don't see anything that's getting better here. Um, and I think it's sort of the same with language. We are going to be the good people. We are going to make sure that nobody ever feels offended by using, maybe they want to be Latina. Maybe they don't. Maybe they want to be Hispanic. Maybe they want to be Guatemala. Maybe what? So you know what? We, we, the good people with this sort of time on our hands are going to come up with Latinx or Latinx or whatever. And Latinx. now Latinx. Latinx. That's funny. Let's do it. Let's call it that. Latinx. That's kind of cute, isn't it? It kind of sounds like a band name or something. Yeah, like or Latinx is like, have you heard the new song by Latinx? <laughs> um, it's like, you know, we, we, we will come up with this and now everybody will have it and nobody, we will never ever risk offending anyone because this will be the universal thing that covers everybody. 
excuse me, that's not for anybody else to say. If they want it, that's great. You did sure, and you came up with a word, and okay. But to, it then becomes you are the bad person again in the language initiative. If you don't use it, you are possibly causing harm. You are possibly causing offense if you don't use this term that we, the 1% came up with. What? You know, it's, it's so, and it's, it's these, these language guidelines are really influential. I mean, like I have a good friend who listens to this podcast and she works at a progressive, a very well-known progressive organization. I'm not going to say which one it is because I don't want to bust her for telling me this story, but basically they had um a meeting this week and she she works in in fundraising and they were like you can no longer use certain words you, you know you you can't use they're basically all these words that you can't use well she writes grants that are like they have word counts like so if you can't say the underserved or you can't say um the what is what was the word that she was so frustrated not to be able to w- use? It wasn't even the poor because I don't think they would use that. But like, um, anyway, it, it was such a normal word. And now you have to use people who are systematically, you know, kept out of but opportunity. This, okay. It's like you literally can't fit the words into a 250 word um, grant. Okay, but this you know, is some also- of them have word. It's, it's ridiculous. But this is also doing exactly what Sol said, all right? So ostensibly, you're here to help, right? You're here to help everybody. You're here to make sure nobody feels any harm. Okay, you're a grant writer, and you can't say the underserved anymore. So you have to come up with some weird gobbledygook. And the person that's now reading it on the other end is like, I don't get it. I'm not giving you this grant. Not, and and not right? only that, but people that donate to this cause do it because they feel that other people are underserved. So you're undercutting. That's right. The You're, the thing, like rich people want to feel like they're doing good things for the poor. What did what did I just, what's the article I just wrote on murder in Portland? All these people that are going to be doing these super good things, we're going to repair these historical wrongs and we're going to make sure that people who step on their wife's windpipe and put a gun to her head and strangle her, we're going to make sure we're kind to him because historically we haven't been. Okay, and then he kills her. So you have done a lot of good. I know I'm a little still hotter to the collar about this, but it's just, it's so incredibly corrosive. It is so, let's just say I agree with soul here. You know, Henderson had some really cool observations that I hadn't made about certain cultural trends that are also status brags. The one that he, that opened my eyes. I mean, I guess I knew it, but I hadn't quite articulated it the way he did was polyamory. Oh, oh my, so did I. Oh man. Yep. So he tells, yep. so he tells a story yep. about a student that had his Tinder setting set on a five mile radius and all the women were, all the young women who are presumably also students were all polyamorous. And then he set his radius on 15 miles to get the suburbs and it was all single mothers. Or if not and, all, but it was a large. Oh no, I'm sorry. Percent. It wasn't all. Like 50%, 50%, something like that. Yeah. It, you know, and then he goes on to explain that, you know, basically, uh, intact families like the idea of being brought up in a two-person two-parent household has stayed intact among the upper classes but it's absolutely cratered amongst the lower classes and so he says you know the affluent are among the most likely to display the luxury belief that sexual freedom is great that they are the most likely to get married and least likely to get divorced i remember i guess this is gosh when did my had a little novel come out. It was 2010 in Portland. And um, it was like polyamory was like all the rage. And the people that were polyamorous were so loud about it. It was like this constant drumbeat. Look at us. Look how, look how progressive we are. Look how much more enlightened we are than you old people or you straight people or you fogey people. And then, of course, you just get these other stories of people just being miserable. But I remember at the time thinking like, just like you and I have talked about, if you want to be polyamorous, that's fine. You you can do what you want. Why do we all need to hear about it? What do you? Why do you need us to well, validate this? Because it's so interesting, this? though. I kind of do want to hear about it. Like I oh, kind of do want to hear about people's polyamory because it's actually I, like it's a mess. It's like it's a mess. So okay. 
it's such a mess. And the idea that like, oh yeah, we're so advanced that we would never feel jealous or we would never mind all of these things happening. It's like, yeah, good luck with that. I, I, I We've talked about this before. I don't really care about other people's sex lives. I mean, I'm interested in MILF Manor, but I'm just, I know you're going to, you're going to pick up, you're going to take that one. I just do care about other people's sex lives. I I just want to be on record that like, if you want to talk about your sex life, don't send it to Nancy. That's right. Send it to me. I am like hooked on other people's sex lives. And I literally was, that was my job. <laughs> to be the editor at Salon. It, I, my, that job description could have just been called Other People's Sex Lives. Um, and it was great, and I love it, and I miss it sometimes. But, uh, you know, the Henderson essay brought up something for me. You know, I have missed Tom Wolfe so much, yeah. the novelist Tom Wolfe. People talk about a lot of different writers that they wish were here. Chris Hitchens comes up a lot, and I yep. miss him. Um, David Wallace, of course, because... Yep. Oh, I miss Wallace, my cat, by the way. I'm just giving a shout out to Wallace in case he's listening. Um, (laughs) Does he not subscribe? No, but what I think he did, he sent me a little message. He's like, look, I'm going to be, I'm going to be dipping out for three days while she's not here, but don't tell her she does not like it. It's not true. It's not true because he doesn't even like anybody else. My parents come over to feed him and they're like, he doesn't like us. I'm like, I know. All right. He's like so particular. I'm not going to make this about Wallace. But I was going to talk about David Wallace. And, and you know, like I really do miss that guy. But i tell you what, who, whose name doesn't come up and who I think is one of the, like I have missed him profoundly is Tom Wolfe. Because Tom Wolfe, more than any American novelist, wrote about status. Mm-hmm. And he very, he very mm-hmm. intentionally wrote about status. He thought it was the way to understand American behavior. So, you know, this was something that I read, you know, I became, I got a little hooked on, well, first of all, I, you know, I always loved, like I, I read Bonfire the Vanities. It's an amazing book. I read that. His, I ate that like a box of popcorn. That oh my God. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> such, yeah. he is such a fun storyteller and the sort of pyrotechnic way that he writes, which sort of, you know, pioneering new journalist. Uh, it's absolutely fantastic. I'm completely guilty of like, basically plagiarizing him in my early career, you know, I would, before I had stories due, I would read essays of his and try to kind of like, like catch his wave or something. Um, But, you know, he wrote about status in a way that I think what he, he, he used it as a lens to understand all his characters' behaviors. So instead of psychology, Freudian, you know, he was using like, what does this person want in terms of status? He had read in college an essay by Max Weber or Weber. I don't know which. I'm going to guess yeah. it's Max Weber. Uh, and it was called Class, Status, and Poverty. And it was basically, you know, it, it sought everything. It sought to attribute everything to economic class. Um, so basically, this is, I'm going to quote Wolf. In a, in a story that I'll link, he says, Weber's theory of status was something new. It replaced the idea of class systems. When Marx wrote about the classes, he was really thinking about England. He was sitting there in the British Library with England's classes all around him. But it's never been a good way to look at the United States. After I discovered Max Weber, I began to think sociology was the king of subjects. And I think he's right here. I mean, I think other, I think psychology is great. I think, you know, I I think, but, but this is really my, my lens as well. I mean, especially, you know, when, when you, I always think about status in terms of like social media. I mean, it's literally like your status is literally part of the drop down menu. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and we are jockeying for status in such fascinating ways. You know, if you want a good read, if you've never read, uh, the Radical Chic essay by Tom Wolfe that's from 1970 that's about uh, the party that Leonard Bernstein uh, oh, threw man. at his house oh, for the Black man. Panthers. Uh, Dude. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah, yeah, essay. Yeah, yeah. And I dug it out, I think, after like around the Black Lives Matter moment because I was like, this is such history repeating itself. Uh, is that is that is the book, The Me Generation? I think it's included in his book. So, so another essay that I think is probably my favorite essay to understand this moment is the one that gets called the me 
generation, which is about the 70s. That's an essay from, I believe, New York Magazine. And it's really talking about the explosion of self-help and new age and, and you know, th- that happens in the 70s and the the sort of search for individual freedom that it begins, you know, one of the things that he talks about, you know, he begins that essay by quoting a commercial that I knew from my childhood, which was that like, if I have one life to live, I want to live it as a blonde. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about that is that when he was writing this essay, that was a kind of new concept. I mean, it wasn't totally new, but but the idea is new in, in the 20th century that you were actually a brunette but you're going to change yourself to a blonde. And he, you know, uses that to extrapolate all the different changes that are going on in the 70s. If I have one life to live, I don't want to live it married to this person. You know, divorce laws change in the 70s, and that's when we get peak divorce in 1980. It's the 70s are the decade of divorce because because there's no fault divorce laws. And so, um, you know, if I only have one life to live, I don't want to live it as a straight person. And, you know, now you have, if I only have one life to live, I don't want to live it as a woman. I want to live it as a man. And and I see this as a spectrum of individual expression that has just expanded as technology has expanded. This is, this is my lens. It's just my particular lens to view the world. It doesn't mean it's right or anything. But I go back to that essay a lot because I think it's absolutely profound um, in terms of understanding where we're at and um i just missed the hell out of tom wolf he would be getting a fucking kick out of this right now i uh matt welch was <clears throat> telling me that he just reread the me generation i haven't i haven't read it in a couple of years but i can say as someone who was a child in the 70s and watched literally just watched the atomization of you know half of the families that we knew um because it was going to be they were going to try, you know, they hadn't been allowed to do things in the forties and fifties when they grew up. And now all of a sudden they could, and there was pot and there was group therapy and there was fucking your secretary without any consequences. And, and again, I think they could do that in the forties, by the way. Well, yeah. Okay. Sorry. My bad. Um, but of course I'm also talking about New York city. I'm sure, you know, not all the country was like this, but you know, there was, it was, it would seep well, the, around. Well, by the way, what's really different in the seventies is that women could do that. See, I, men could do that in the thirties and forties. I have to tell you, I, I saw my parents sort of, you know, evolve or devolve through this. And um, I don't think my father was the only person who became a pretty lonely guy. You know, you're going to make these things. You're going to, you know, not have any consequences. And then there are consequences. And then you're cut free and you're 35 um, and you've got, you know, and it's where it, it, people, people were lost. That, have, you read, was, have you read, I'm sorry. I'm just have saying, you they're saying they're going to find themselves, but they actually wound up getting kind of lost. It's a good line. Um, have you read Thy Neighbor's Wife? Uh, that's Gaitley's? Yeah. I haven't. Oh, fuck. It's so good. Okay, You've got to okay, read Thy okay, Neighbor's okay. Wife. Seriously, it's, okay, it's, it's, okay. it's one of my, it's my top five to make sense of this moment. It's also just like the, one of the most badass pieces of journalism, the way that he unfolds it. Um, I don't even want to tell you, you got to read it. You got to read okay. it. Listeners okay. read it. And then we'll do a whole episode on thy neighbor's wife okay. because it, and, and gay has been canceled because remember that he went to, um, he is, um, he's a journalist. He's one of the, ori- the original, people behind the new journalism movement. You think of it as like Tom Wolf, Gaitalise, um, Joan Didion, and Hunter S. Thompson, who are all heroes to me. Hunter S. Thompson less, but I do love his velocity. And Gaitalise wrote one of the sort of seminal profiles, um, or like they call it like the journalism workaround. Frank Sinatra has a cold or Sinatra has a cold? Yep. Frank Sinatra yeah. has a cold, which is a Fabulous. I remember reading that when I just started writing as a journalist. It's like, oh my God, yes, yes, yes. This is it right here. Yeah. Yes. The, the, the story on that is that he never got to interview Frank Sinatra. And so he sort of has to do this, what's called a workaround, where he writes a piece 
where he doesn't interview the subject, which just seems like nonsensical, but it's actually some of those are the best, the best pieces. Yep. And, uh, so anyway, he's a giant of the form, but he went to some conference a few years ago. Oh my God, this was like elder abuse. And somebody asked him, who were the women that influenced you? And he said, well, there weren't really any. And people freaked out because they were so mad that he didn't say Joan Didion or Janet Malcolm or like whoever the fuck. And he was like, he was like, well, I, I, you know, I, I, I've known a lot of women. He's married to Nantalise, who's Man, like who's one a of the top. Big, big publisher. And apparently she didn't mind him saying what he said. So God, who gives a fuck? Yeah. But it's like, you ask me, if you ask me, Sarah Heppola, who influenced you? Like, and, and you're like, well, which, you know, like which people under five foot four influenced you? And I'm like, well, none of them. It's also and you're like, how dare you? It's also Sarah, and we're not going to beat this dead horse, but like if somebody said who influenced you and you're like, you know, who really influenced me was, you know, Joan Didion and Susan T- Sontag, you would not have thousands and thousands of people online coming at you because you did not mention a man. Yeah, no kidding. Right. I mean, no just, kidding. No kidding. No kidding. I, I really thought it was elder abuse when that happened to him. But anyway, Thy Neighbor's Wife, what I want to tell you about this, it is an exceptional book. And it is so profound. Now, he it, it, it also was very controversial because, you know, he spent 10 years doing it. And at the end, he goes to like these massage parlors and gets uh, happy ending massages to be part of like, to like figure out the journalism for of the it. Story. Anyway, for the story. It's a quote for the story. Hey, we have to do certain things massages. for our, you know, I ha- you have to make certain sacrifices for the work. It's there. for the story. But anyway, the story. Um, there is a story about one of the first like sex communes in the seventies that was in California, of course. And I forget what it's called. It's like the sandpiper or the sandlot or something like that. But it was this place where people would go and they would kind of explore their sexuality. And this couple goes, it was, I think it was the guy's idea. And the first night he sleeps with another woman and his wife is really upset. But the second night or the next week or whatever, she sleeps with another guy and he is destroyed. And what ends up happening is that she kind of finds herself and is, and is like blossoming into her own and he is completely lost and cratered. This is what I'm saying that I saw because the women, when these splits happened, kind of went on. And of course, there were other lost men that were, they were happy to like, take in, but the the guys kind of got left behind. That's that's my observation. I'm telling you that book, I love it so much. And, you know, you can't even really talk about it on social media, because he also got, he also got in trouble because he wrote a book a couple years ago called The Voyeur, which was about a guy that was um, spying on couples through a peephole in the top of a Oh yeah. On top of yeah, a hotel yeah, yeah. and he did it for years. And right before the book came out, the guy was like, yeah, I made those stories up. <sighs> oh, um, well maybe we should, uh, we, maybe we should talk about, uh, thy neighbor's wife on the uh, zoom we're going to have. What do you think? Well, yeah, if anybody's read it, but like, yeah, well, I'm saying we got a week like, and a half. Just, I, I'm just saying, okay. I'm just, just well, I'm, I think that it deserves more of a rollout. Like I think everyone should participate in thy neighbor's wife because honestly, I think it's one of the most neglected like books about the late 20th century. And it's a masterwork. The way that he writes it, it's so cool. It also tells um, Hugh Hefner's story. It tells several different people's stories and it talks about Hugh Hefner's early years. Um, you know, his girlfriend cheated on him, his fiance cheated on him yep. and he was gutted. And that's sort of the heartbreak that leads to Playboy. And I think when you read it, you really understand where this guy comes from. I mean, he got his heart broken so early and then he created this whole empire to try to protect himself from that hurt. And then of course the tragedy of it is that he never connects to anyone again. You know, he's just this sort of like cartoon of a libertine that just like dissolves into these orgies where like he's watching television in the background. And it's just, it's so sad because pleasure, you know, like pursued for its own end to the extreme is just, it's actually like its own kind of torture. Huh. Um, 
there was something else we wanted to talk about, which I thought I thought this article. I'm so glad you sent it to me. I hadn't I hadn't seen it. Um, uh, Pamela Paul writing about the novel American Dirt. Um, if people don't remember, I believe it was 2020. Uh, this novel came out called it was a fictional novel called American Dirt. What was the the writer's name? The author's name? I don't know. I don't remember. Okay, I don't either. Um, in any case, this novel apparently was so brilliant when it went to market. It started off a crazy bidding war. Not if, if people don't know, if you write a book, if it's if you've got a good agent and it's it's got some heat, it goes to a bidding war. Different publishers bid on it, and um, nine, I guess, bid on it, and it went to the, it sold for over a million dollars. It got. Can you say what it's about? Um, I believe it's about. I, I don't know. I didn't read it, but it's, it's about it's a border a, story. It, and and she has to escape over the border with her child. Is that correct? I think so. The author's name <clears throat> is Janine Cummins. Cummins. So it got incredible advance press. Of course, she got a big advance financially. And um, I mean, like the biggies. It was just glowing, glowing. Seven dollars. I think seven figures. Oh, I think no, she it was got over a million, million dollars. dollars. Yeah. And um, and then it. it became an Oprah pick. Obviously, we know you become an Oprah pick. This is, you know, you get your golden ticket. Um, and then I guess right when it was about to come out or had just come out, um, a blogger, um, Hispanic or Latinx uh, writer, Latinx. who's, she had written a book a couple of years before, and she'd also written an article for I can't remember who it was for, but the article got killed. When an article gets killed, you you know you sell the idea, you turn it in, and for a variety of reasons, they just don't want to run it. it, it it's not even sometimes yeah. having anything to do with what you wrote. It's well, sometimes it does, but it's you know they don't have paper space or they're skipping an issue, whatever. It doesn't matter, but it got killed. Well, I guess she took to social media and she basically uh, castigated this writer for not being uh, Hispanic enough. I guess she's a quarter maybe a quarter Puerto Rican, the novelist, but she felt, again, uh, this was cultural appropriation and you are not allowed, you know, the, the thing that we've been dealing with, you're not Mexican, you can't make a tortilla, you know, you're not, uh, you're not Latin, you can't write about a Latin character. I, as I think we all know, and Sarah agrees, I think you can cook whatever the hell you want. I think you can write whatever the hell you want. And if people want to read it, they can. If they don't want to read it, they don't have to. Well, what happened? Uh, the publisher of the book canceled the book tour. It became, I mean, there were a lot of articles about this, Sarah, that I recall in the Times and in other publications talking about, you know, and now all these people, the, there's a, a list of writers, including some writers I know, including Alexander Chi and some other people. They signed a, it wasn't Pan, I can't remember what group it was. It was some writer's organization. They signed Did 88 Alexander of them. Chi, Alexander yep. Chi signed yep. this? Yep. Yep. I really like people. him as a writer. I yep. really, he's a great I've writer. I met him. I did a reading. He came to a reading I did once in New York a number he's of years a, ago. He's a very nice guy. He's and a some very other, nice actually, guy. I looked at the list yesterday. I knew five or six of the writers personally on this list. I was like, what? Anyway, they come out, yes, yeah, you can't do this. And this is taking bread out of the mouths of other writers who have not had opportunities and on and on and on and on. So- Pamela Paul, who for years was the head of the book review at the New York Times and is now an opinion writer, she wrote a piece last week. It's three years later, and now we're going to revisit what happened. Do you want to take this from here a little bit? Well, sure. Um, you know, one of the interesting things about American Dirt is that if you only followed the journalism, if you only followed the news stories about it, you would think that this book had been like pulped and pulled from the shelves and Janine Cummins could never show her face again. And what's really interesting about it is that the book did, it was a sensation. Yeah. It did really, really well. It was a blockbuster. It's been translated into like, I don't remember what it 37 was. Like 37 languages. languages. You know, and it's, and, and they even quote somebody who's like in a, you know, in Mexico or something. Yes. And he's like, this book's great. We love, we love this book. But this is sort of like, again, we're getting back to like the 3% of people use Latinx, right? And everyone else is like, whatever, yes. let me use what I want. Let me read what I want. And that, you know, though, Though, apparently, what was the quote also in the article that she hasn't been 
the writer hasn't been written about in three years or she hasn't participated in something. There's sort of like an embargo on her still. Something like that. There's some sort of like, like fatwa on her, but you know, it's, oh, oh no, no. She hasn't been asked for blurbs. That's what it was. She hasn't. Okay. Which, yeah. And blurbing you know, is, is a very, it's an annoying thing, but like basically it is an a annoying book, thing. And like, it's like, well, and then everybody comes up, you know, once, once she'd have blurbed their book and it's, it's such a, like, we should talk about that sometime because it's such we a, should, it's well, such let's a talk about it right now speech. for a second. We've got a couple of minutes here. So no, I'm okay, just telling you, read- you that like, like it's, it's, it's such a Ponzi scheme and it's also what like, I, uh, I don't know if Ponzi scheme is right. It's really early here, but but what I mean is that a lot of people, a lot of writers just do those blurbs to get their names on the back of books. Like I was going to dinner with a writer one night and I won't say who she was. She does a lot of these blurbs. And I had a book that I had been given to blurb and I didn't like it. And I was like, wanted to ask her opinion of what I do if I don't like it. And I started and I said, um, you know, so I have this book to blurb. And she was a little drunk at the time. And she was like, oh, and you don't want to read it? I just go to Amazon and I just use the language on Amazon. <gasps> what? And I was like, oh, you don't even read it. You know, okay. So I have done a lot of book reviews. I'm sure you have too, um, Sarah. And I have cannot tell you the number of people. And these are book reviews for the Wall Street Journal or for Newsday. I mean, like, you know, <laughs> the number of people said to me, so do you actually read the whole book? I'm like... <laughs> yes, I read yes. the whole book and I make notes and I make sure that I've got my facts right and my pages and the quotes. Like, it's like a really serious business. So, so a blurb, you know what everybody, listeners know what a blurb gets book. Oh, you know, Sarah Heppler says, well, I love this book. This is great. Um, what I was going to say is the weird thing about asking people for blurbs because it's sort of a crazy feeling. Like you've spent years on this book. And now you need, you know, you're going to press and your publisher will say to you, go get some blurbs from, you know, writers you think are going to appreciate this book. Was that a nerve? Is that ever a nervous making thing for you, Sarah? It makes you super nervous to ask people. Oh yeah. It's super embarrassing. You feel like you're just like knocking on their door and asking for money or something like that. It's so, it's awful. But the thing about it is that everybody has to do it. Yeah. Like when I was putting out blackout, you were like contractually obligated to contact Cheryl Strayed and ask her for a blurb. And she must have had like a bounce yeah. back response that was like, thank you for your query. Yeah, I, I have no I time. Have, yes. yeah. I, she can't yeah. do it. She can't. Yeah. Literally yeah. every single female author that's putting out a book is asking her, you know, she did wild and it was a blockbuster at the time. And, you know, it, it just, she can't do it. And, um, you know, I, I'm not a good blurber. Because A, I'm a slow reader. I won't blurb your book if I don't like it. I just tell well, them like, I'm busy. Yeah, no, no. Yeah. I'm busy. And I, cause I've never known how to say, I don't care for this book. You know, I make my agent do it sometimes. Just tell them I'm busy. I will say tell, for anybody. Tell them my, my mom's calling. I got to get off the phone. <laughs> um, for anybody that does have a book and has to ask for blurbs, it is, it is kind of, you, you get very nervous, but, um, people, writers can be super generous. They're, they're, they're in this position too. I remember I had a book of short stories coming out, Transportation. I really liked the writer Dana Spiata. I never met her, oh, but she's, we, she's we, good. we'd communicated. I did. I actually did wind up meeting her later on, but I was like, oh yeah, yeah, I'm going to just ask. And she did it. She did it. And she wrote me a beautiful blurb, you know, and just because it's like, it's the world we're in. And of course, if she hadn't liked it, I'm sure she, would, she wouldn't have. Um, but yeah, the world of blurbing. So one of the people that blurbed this book was Stephen King, which is probably one of the top three blurbs you could get in the world, right? Sure, sure. And he blurbed it very enthusiastically. And so he got dragged when this came out. And when this New York Times piece came out, he got dragged all over again. And so Stephen King, who is one of my heroes, but he has some woke politics that I don't does. love. Like I don't love-, love him on Twitter. He gets prickly and woke a bit on Twitter. Yeah. He does. He but, does. But he put, he drew a line in the sand this week. And it was people who want to damn books for cultural appropriation are really no different from those who want to ban textbooks dealing with black and or queer identity. The flashpoints are different, but the lightning is always the same. Your ideas should not be disseminated. 100%. 
And he got lit up for this. Um, I found it because uh, Stephen King was trending. And of course, people were just like, that's not the same. You should take this back. Delete this tweet. And here's a very popular response that got 6,000 likes. Somebody says, nope, untrue. Withholding support from cultural appropriators is done out of respect for members of community who aren't afforded an unequal voice in publishing spaces. Banning black queer subjects in texts is done out of the fascistic requirement for white cishet dominance. Okay, okay, okay. I, I, Bam. I'm sorry. I- Boom. Roasted Stephen King. There's a new king in town. It's Scarlet Rabe at Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Um, I think Pamela Paul's piece is timely. Um, I think there are still a lot of people trying to draw a lot of sustenance and energy from this particular uh, new king of Twitter. They pick all their buzzwords, they put them in a bag, and they put them in a certain order that makes them look all shiny and special. Um, I, As I said to you the other day, and as I'm going to be writing about, I think 2020 was a uniquely um, a year where people became absolutely zombified and needed, needed like they needed, if, like they were vampires and needed blood to start destroying people in public. And one of them was the author of American Dirt. And then they got whatever calories that they could from that and whatever gas they put in their tank to keep going. But now we're just going to talk about it and we're going to look at it for what it is. People like the book. It was translated into 37 languages and has sold over 3 million copies. Let people heard read what they want. And I heard it's great. You know what? If I've heard people, it's really good. Like my friends people, that have read it are like, this shit is really good. <laughs> if people do not want to read it, that's absolutely fine. They do not. They should go write their books and do their best. And if they want to change the publishing industry, they can try to do that. And the publishing industry is changing. Um, well, but- it's so interesting. Pamela Paul has become a new punching bag on Twitter, certainly, especially in um, like literary circles. And it's so transparent because Pamela Paul's politics are pretty moderate. You know, there's nothing that she does that's really that offensive. I mean, this piece is like, is really reasonable, but people want to dog on her because she ran the New York Times book review for so many years. And it's so transparent that they're just pissed off that like they didn't get the review they wanted or they got a bad review and they're like, oh, it's all coming out now. Now I realize like Pamela Paul is unmasked. And it's like unmasked is a reasonable, you know, moderate, like what? You know, there's no, there's no mileage and no satisfaction from like taking out the assistant dry cleaner. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. Get over here, Johnny. Um, I, I, I also do not, I, I've seen it. I mean, we, I've seen it with a particular friend of mine who I shall not name someone else who's really made a big kerfuffle about her, what she thought was a bad book review. Listen, if you, I've gotten bad, my, I, I have had bad book reviews on books of mine. If you want to, you can go look at your your reviews on Amazon and some of them are going to be one star. Um, I did like the five-star review I got on Amazon saying, I loved this book about the bridge because the building of the Brooklyn Bridge was so amazing. Oh my, oh my God. The Brooklyn Bridge. I'm I, like, cool. Five stars. I'll take it. But look, you you know what? We are so lucky to be able to do the work we do and to put a book out into the world. If you get a bad review, it's okay. People don't need to love your work, but they should do it legitimately, not just because you have the wrong skin color or eye color or whatever. Can I tell you that I just had a friend go through my Amazon reviews and pull out the bad reviews because I wanted to share them with my class that I'm teaching because oh, they're really nervous yeah. about workshopping. And so I wanted yeah. them to see oh. that like everybody gets bad reviews. And it was hilarious because I mean, some of them are really bad. You know, they're just like, do you have insomnia? Read this book. <laughs> this writer is so full of herself. I'm going to find our it's, worst ones and put them in the show notes. I'll find it's our fantastic. worst reviews. But, um, but the one that was so unfair was, I don't remember if it was two stars or what, but the review was two words bent cover. Oh, oh, I've gotten, I didn't read this book, but I don't like books like this. One star. <laughs> it's unfair. It's okay, so unfair. There we go. 
Um, okay, we are bumping up into our one hour mark. We are going to move into the bonus um, the, for the God, paid subscriber. I am so horny for talking about MILF Manor. Okay, you're going to be horny for And we are also going to be talking about Felicia Sonmez, formerly Ooh. of the Washington Post. We have an update on Felicia Sonmez here. And then um, we'll talk about our hotbox. And I'm going to actually talk about a little uh, personal stuff about my mom. So everybody go become a paid subscriber and uh, we'll see you there. Yeah.